Uh, if you have your copy of Scripture, go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and while you turn there, I just want to welcome Patrice back. She's fresh off of a mission trip, got in about 10-something last night from Nicaragua, and, and, uh, and, and just ever this, you can just see it on her face, that it's just an incredible time. So we, we prayed for you and grateful for what God did in and through you. Uh, we're picking up in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, we left off a couple of weeks ago in chapter, at the end of chapter 3 and where we uh, read about an incredible miracle as Peter and John were heading into the temple for afternoon prayer, that uh, they were stopped by a beggar. And by the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they administered healing to the man in the name of Jesus. And on that day, a 40-year-old man uh, who had never walked a day in his life got up and he began to walk and leap and praise God. And that got the crowd's attention, as you can imagine. And so Peter recognized an opportunity to speak. And so uh, he, he preaches uh, his first sermon. And, and, and as we're about to see, his sermon not only affected uh, many who heard, but it also captured the attention of the religious leaders in the temple. And the early church is about to face its first challenge in the form of religion. And that may sound a little bit uh, strange to you until you think about the fact that it was the same thing that Jesus faced uh, when he was ministering here on earth. In fact, he, Jesus even tried to prepare. Remember, we walked through the book of Mark, and there was many times as he was coming near the end where he was, would take the opportunity to train and teach the disciples. And, and in John 15, 20, he tells the disciples that if they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you. And we're about to see this played out in the lives of the early church. In fact, uh, from this point forward, we're going to see some form of opposition almost on every page. Up to this point, everything for the new believers, the early church has been uh, going pretty well. The arrow is pointing up and going to the right. Uh, beginning with a 40-day visit with Jesus after the resurrection uh, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And that was followed by Peter's preaching his uh, sermon, and 3,000 people responded to his invitation. I mean, Jordan preached his first sermon last week. It would have been incredible if he had 3,000 come forward. Yeah, that's a pretty good response. And at this point, I imagine the disciples are giving each other high fives and they're beginning to talk about uh, writing books and doing conferences on how to grow a church. And I, maybe I think that way because that's what we'd probably do with something like that. We, we would think we could can it and go out and present it in a way. But as we're about to see, they're going to see them face some major opposition and persecution. And before we go any further, uh, I, I want to give us some working definitions of those two words of opposition and persecution because sometimes uh, what can sometimes feel like persecution for our faith is in reality just opposition that we're experiencing. And you'll see that as we, these working definitions, they're in your hand out there uh, and on the screen. Working definition for persecution is persecution is hostility and ill treatment because of racial, political, and religious beliefs. 
hostility and ill treatment because of racial, political, and religious belief. A very current one right now we're seeing around the world is the hostility toward Jewish people. That, that, that's persecution. The other is opposition, and the definition we're going to go with on this is, is basically trials that come against us. And these trials come in many shapes and sizes, from financial to sickness, uh, to relationship issues, to slander, to betrayal, to hatred, uh, to people stabbing us in the back. <clears throat> so when you think about it in those terms, we see that what the vast majority of us uh, here this morning, and maybe those listening, it is the vast majority of what we experience because of our spiritual beliefs is not persecution, but a whole lot of opposition. That doesn't mean that, that persecution for our faith won't come or that some of you or some of us aren't facing that right now. But for the most part, what, what's coming against us is good old-fashioned opposition, which leads to our first takeaway, and it's this, that, that sometimes obeying God opens the door to great opposition in our life. I've said again, sometimes when we obey Christ, when we do what he calls us to do in Scripture, that, that sometimes as we obey him, it opens the door to opposition. And this shouldn't shock us. First Peter, I didn't tell you to turn there and kind of came to this later. First Peter chapter 4, uh, P- Peter says this, says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Instead, verse 13, be very glad for those trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed in all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. Say blessed. You will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. The second takeaway is this, is opposition may be our reward, not our curse. Our opposition may be our reward, not a curse, depending. And here, here, here's the difference here. Depending on what your definition of a good life is. If your definition is that a good life means that you never face persecution or opposition, then, then your life won't always be good because it's coming. But if your definition and the goal of your life is to glorify God, then life will never be bad. That, that doesn't mean that you won't face trials and pain and suffering. And that everything will go your way. But, but even in the pain and disappointment, you will see, if your goal of your life is to glorify God, you'll see that God wastes nothing, that, that, that you'll see the hand of God in your pain and suffering, and that God will use your difficulties to accomplish a greater plan and a greater purpose. There's a greater glory that God is going for in your life, in the life of a believer. It's not just experiencing the blessing here and now. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, we're putting too much pressure on this world. We're, we're looking too much at this world thinking that it has the ability to satisfy, to bring true satisfaction in our life, to bring true joy and fulfillment. But it's never going to satisfy. You'll get the new shiny thing. you get the new iPhone. 
Six months later, they'll release another one. You got to go after that. You get, a, you get married. You get tired of that, so you get a new wife. But she'll get on your nerves after a while. I mean, it never, this, what in this world will not satisfy? We're about to see the early church face and walk through persecution uh, for their faith. And, and the way they responded in many ways <clears throat> gives us a blueprint on how to handle opposition and persecution when it comes knocking on our door. If you notice Acts chapter 4, it picks up where chapter 3 left off, meaning the story continues. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Now, I kind of want to pause right here and just kind of describe who those guys are, uh, just so you'll know. Uh, what was really at stake here and kind of what they were feeling against them. When the priest, uh, the, the priest had very little political power, but they had a major influence uh, among the Jews as they were charged with observing the law of Moses. The temple guard did just that. They, they were armed guards that protected the temple treasures uh, and kept order among the people. They also were among those who arrested Jesus and kept watch, uh, kept him under watch between the trials. There's two groups of the people. The other is the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were a peculiar breed of people, <clears throat> meaning that though, though, though they had Hebrew blood coursing through their veins, they lived and behaved like Greeks. They were wealthy, aristocratic, politically ambitious people who were vehemently skeptical of anything supernatural. They, they, they rejected all notions of life after death and the resurrection and, and angels and eternal punishment or reward. Uh, the, the, these men chose a theological perspective that, that best served their desires and their motivations. And while the Sadducees controlled the temple, they did so at the pleasure of Rome of the enemy. And so all these leaders showed up uh, to hear what Peter and John were saying. And verse 2 says, uh, these leaders were very disturbed that, that Peter and John were teaching the people that, that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. More specifically, uh, they didn't like that the followers of the man they killed were, were teaching that that man had risen from the dead and that those who believed in him could be resurrected as well. And because they didn't like that, they didn't like what they were hearing, verse 3 says, they arrested Peter and John and put them in jail. In other words, they viewed the early church as a threat to their power. And for good reason, because, you know, well, as we already said, after Peter's first sermon, 3,000 were added. And then verse 4, as you continue to read, it says, after his second sermon, many people believed, and 5,000 more were added. And the commentary said, that just counts men. That's not referring to the women and children that were also, that they were also not in that number, included that number. And so you can begin to understand why the leaders were concerned enough to throw Peter and John and perhaps even the healed lame man into jail. Verse 5, then the next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. And, and Luke includes four men who on most occasions uh, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have showed up at these proceedings. 
And it adds an even more uh, sinister element to an already dark scene. Look at verse 6. And as the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. And you say, big deal. <laughs> Let me tell you why that was a big deal. The, the Sanhedrin, which was the high priest, made of the high priest and other leaders, Sanhedrin held the visible power at Jerusalem, but Enaz and his relatives, all these other guys, they, they represented, they held the invisible power because they were part of, the, of, of a very real unorganized uh, crime base. And Enaz was the head of that. He's like the godfather of the mafia. And so the, these groups, and so in essence, Peter and John have, have been brought before a joint session of Congress and the Mafia. And we're, we're, we're given an incredible picture of how power operates in the absence of truth. Or maybe more specifically, we'll, we'll see, see how these leaders who have no desire to know or follow the truth react when they're challenged. And unfortunately, it won't take much imagination on our part because we see it all the time, both in the political and religious realms, that, that when challenged, people with power will do three things. Number one, that they will use their power to intimidate and strike fear into the hearts of those holding opposing views. That's one way. Uh, the next thing they will do, that they will use tradition as a way uh, to prevent further investigation or silence opposing views. And if that doesn't work, number three, uh, they will use coercion to manipulate the behavior of their opponents. And they'll use everything from flattery to threats and bribes to blackmail and even total elimination if necessary. I mean, some things never change. I mean, just, just watch the evening news. And you, you'll see all kinds of examples of when power is threatened, people will lie, cover up, and manipulate the system in order to maintain their power. Or you'll see some dictator somewhere in other parts of the world uh, who have their opponents eliminated in order to win an election or to retain power. I mean, it happens all the time. Nothing new. And we're going to see all these play out over the next few verses. The verse 7 says, uh, they, they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? And this raises some questions. Uh, number one, why did the healing of a man cause such a stir? Why were they so against preaching the gospel? Or maybe a more current question that we kind of wrestle with or at least I do, is why, why does it seem like so many people today are antagonistic to the message of the gospel? Why do so many people, why are so many people walking away from the faith? There, there are many reasons for this. As you'll hear, one of the common ones uh, has to do with intellect or reasoning, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, some educated people will say that they used to believe uh, but, but, but they have grown out of that kind of thinking. And the implication is clear uh, that, that if you were more intelligent, you wouldn't hold on to these primitive notions about sin and redemption and eternal life. And the problem with that is twofold. First, 
uh, because there are many extremely intelligent people who do believe the gospel. There are many professors and scholars and scientists and philosophers who have come to faith since they have received their education. One of the best examples is C.S. Lewis. Another more current example of this is Lee Strobel. You ever seen or read the book, The Case for Christ? Lee Strobel uh, was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. He was married to an agnostic. An atheist doesn't believe there's a God. An agnostic believes there's a God out there, but they just, you know, come in many forms. And so the problem was his, his, his wife met a Christian and in the process became a follower of Christ. And so she came home one day and she told Lee, that, that, hey, I, I need to tell you something. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he said, the first word that came to my mind was divorce. And he set out, this brilliant man set out uh, to investigate Christianity and, and the resurrection. And in the process, he became a Christ follower. The, the, their, the, the first argument is there are extremely intelligent people who do believe the gospel. Second problem is that there are many uneducated people who don't believe the gospel. Which means that unbelief is not the end result of gaining more knowledge or becoming more intelligent. At least our third point is, is that rejecting the gospel is not a belief issue. It is a heart issue. I mean, no one likes to admit that they're wrong, that they're a sinner. We want to believe that we are all basically good people, and with enough good education or opportunity, we we would be good enough. But the gospel requires that we admit that we are powerless to save ourselves. And another common excuse or reason why some people reject the gospel is because they simply don't want to give up control or lose power. They don't want to bend their knee. They don't want to submit to God's authority. They want to be the ones to determine what is right or wrong based on their personal preferences, not on what God says in his word. And so at the end of the day, hostility to the gospel is not a matter of intelligence or preferences. It's a matter of heart. And it's where the religious leaders were. The religious leaders felt like their power was diminishing, which means they they would no longer be able to intimidate and manipulate the people. When you think about it, it's pretty amazing that that, that Peter and John weren't intimidated by, by this imposing gathering of powerful leaders. <clears throat> they stood firm. Maybe because, maybe because they, they were expecting him, because there was another time when Jesus was walking with them one day, and he began to prepare them for life after them. And Matthew, it's found in Matthew 10, 18-20, when he says this, there will come a day uh, that, that you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But, but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and the other unbelievers about me. Verse 19 says, when you are arrested... Don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words to say at the right time. So as we pick up our story back in Acts, verse 7 says uh, that they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power and in whose name have you done this? 
And, and verse 8, has, has, we see a phrase that we're going to see uh, many times throughout the, the book of, of Acts. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood to address the leaders. And, and this phrase uh, doesn't mean that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit comes and goes in our life because Scripture clearly teaches that, that when someone becomes a child of God, that God's Spirit takes up permanent residence in their heart and life. That you get every bit of the Holy Spirit, but here's the deal, and we talked about this a few months ago, but we can control how much freedom we give the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. The Bible teaches, and from example, I've seen that as we yield to the Spirit's leading that he guides and directs us. And especially in the times of pain and suffering and in opposition, we, we are giving. As we yield uh, to, to the Holy Spirit, we are given an increased and temporary measure of God's Spirit to help us get through that trial or that experience. Well, one commentary, uh, Swindoll says that the word filled here is another example of a divine passive uh, indicating that God did the filling, uh, Peter simply yielded to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's emp- and the Spirit empowered him by, by guiding his decisions and words. Meaning that as Peter stood and responded, that, that he didn't have to rely on his own wisdom and courage. He stood uh, to, to defend his case, and God gave him the words to say. He, and, and we're going to see that he addresses two key points. One, uh, the authority in, in verses 9 through 10, and, and, and the other is truth in verses 11 through 12. And before anybody goes to sleep, would y'all turn that heat off, please? <clears throat> Verse 9 says, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man, or do you want to know how he was healed? I mean, the truth is, uh, Peter knew the how, uh, that the how wasn't their question, but that what they were really wanting to know had to do with authority. Verse 10, Peter says, let me clearly state to all you and all the people of Israel that that he, speaking of the lame man, that the lame man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. In other words, we're, we're standing in the authority of the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Messiah, uh, the one you put to death. Verse 11, he says, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And this had to have been a deja vu moment for the religious leaders of a time in the temple when when they questioned Jesus by whose authority are you doing that? By whose authority are you doing what you're doing? And if you remember, Jesus totally embarrassed them when when he said, don't you ever read the scriptures? I mean, he, he's speaking to the religious leaders. Don't you guys ever crack your Bible open? And he uses a metaphor in, in Psalm 118, 22 to declare himself as the Messiah that, that the Jewish scholars would fully understand. And as the Messiah, 
uh, Jesus is the chief cornerstone that they were rejecting. And here Peter is echoing that, that they, and that they rejected the Messiah, but he is alive again. He is God. And in verse 12 he says, for there is no salvation, there is salvation to no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by, by which we must be saved. And when you think about that, that sounds pretty narrow-minded. And here's why. Because all truth is narrow-minded. For truth to be truth, that means everything else is wrong. Verse 13, that the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. In fact, they were kind of shocked that, that their intimidation didn't work on them like it worked with on everybody else, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. And, and that doesn't mean that they weren't educated. Because as Jews, that they had learned how to read and write Hebrew in the synagogue, and that they, they had to memorize Scripture, and they knew the history of Israel as, as well as anyone. What it means is they weren't formally trained in higher education to debate theology and discuss philosophy like the religious leaders did. They, they were simply standing on the authority of God's word, and the evidence of that was boldness. I love the last part of verse 13. It says that the religious leaders also recognized these men as people who had been, as men who had been with Jesus. They saw the boldness, and then they saw a difference in these guys' life that, that these guys had been with Jesus. I mean, would to God that that would be said of our lives. That, that, that somebody would, uh, people around us would, would look at us and recognize us as there being something different about them. It's like they, they, they've been with Jesus, like they exude the power and the love of Jesus. I mean, all hell can be breaking loose in their life, but there's an unexplained peace and confidence about them. It's like they, they, they keep pressing on. That's an evidence that they know Jesus. There was a boldness in Peter and John that the leaders couldn't explain. It was evidence of God's power that they couldn't deny. But there was some more evidence in the room that held them speechless. And verse 14 identifies that it. it says, since they could see the man who had been healed, that's pretty good evidence, they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them. There was nothing they could say. They were speechless. Verse 15, so they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves, basically saying, what are we going to do with these guys? I mean, we, we can't deny that they performed the miracle because he's standing right there. And the whole town knows about it. So what are we going to do? I mean, notice again that they, they didn't reject the testimony of Peter and John because they couldn't believe it. They rejected it because they wouldn't believe it. They weren't about to let the truth and evidence stand in their way. They weren't about the truth and the evidence to rob them of the control and power that they had. And so they, they came with a plan in verse 17. It says, to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, they said, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. And so after intimidation didn't work and their appeal to tradition failed, uh, they, they moved on to what they did best, which was pressure and manipulation. 
So instead of admitting the facts and opening their hearts to God, they, they dig in their heels and fought against the truth. And from that, we, we, we need to remember that, that whenever people are hostile to the gospel, that, that, that they're not just opposing a system of thought or an ideology of some religion. They're opposing, they're actually opposing the, the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as well as the ministry of Jesus through his followers. And the truth is, the historical facts of Christianity are solid. And that aggravates the world to the point that since they can't refute what's historically accurate and true, that what they, what they, what they begin to do is they begin to oppose those, uh, they, they so, to those who are opposed to the gospel. They resort to all kinds of tactics uh, to oppose the gospel or silence it. And so that they will pass laws that restrict religious expression or will attack us personally because if you can't attack the facts, you can attack the person. And so they will misrepresent uh, Christians saying things like Christians hate Muslims and pregnant women and homosexuals, which none of those things is true. We don't hate those people who disagree with them because Jesus loved them. We love them but we love them enough to tell them the truth. Or another thing that, that the world will often do, those that are opposing the gospel, is that they, they will magnify the failures of Christians. Christian scandal is big news. Unfortunately, we see this way too often. And that hurts the cause of Christ. I mean, it's seen as evidence uh, for the non-believing world of the hypocrisy of the Christian faith, and we talk about this all the time, there's not a one of us in this room that, is a hip, that isn't a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. I ain't a perfect person in this room. You understand that we, we must not minimize the lengths. We need to understand that we, we must not minimize the lengths people will go to to try to sidestep the implication of the gospel message, which leads to the next, the last point. Number four is that, that we need to face the fact that, there, that we will face opposition. There will come a time, we already are, there will come, we face opposition. That we must be prepared because sooner or later it will come. And so uh, the, the question is, is will you be ready? Will you be able to stand? Verse 18 says, so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Don't do it anymore. And at this point, Peter and John could have kind of just stayed silent, been released, and gone to Jimmy John's for lunch. They could have gone on with their life. But instead, they took a stand. And they openly rejected the leader's gag order. Verse 19, Peter says this. Do you think God wants to, us to obey you rather than him? Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? And what we get away from this is that, that we are always to respect authority, even when it's wrong, but if authority... And that can be religious authority as well. If somebody tells you, if authority tells you to disobey God, 
we are to disobey that authority and for Jesus' sake, gladly accept whatever punishment it brings. Verse 20 says, we cannot stop telling everything we've seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot for everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of this man who had been lame for more than 40 years. So eventually the religious leaders backed down uh, for fear of the people and public opinion, but it was only a tactical retreat uh, because the war against the church was just beginning. And we'll continue here next week, but before we go, I want to point out something uh, about Peter and John as they responded to this opposition, which was actually persecution, uh, because sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes in when, when, we're, when we feel like we're standing for righteousness, we can become arrogant and ugly in the way that we stand. But, but when you look, when, when you look at Peter and John, you see that there was a confidence that they had that was without arrogance. And here's why. Because when the Holy Spirit fills you, when the Holy Spirit gives you power, it removes your arrogance and replaces it with humility. When the Holy Spirit fills someone, humility displaces the arrogance. And at the root of arrogance is, is, is insecurity, which means that the reason why Peter and John were able to speak with confidence well, was because their security wasn't in themselves. Their security was in the Lord. And that they, that though they had never received formal training to debate theology or philosophy, uh, that they stood on the authority of Christ and the Word of God. And as they yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit, they, they became instruments that God could use to do his will and stand for righteousness, realizing that it could cost them their lives. Sometimes obeying God opens the door to great opposition in our life. And that opposition comes in all shapes and sizes, and sometimes it's pretty intense. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I just want to call a timeout with God and say, God, hey, I'm just reminding you I'm on your side. I'm, I'm trying to follow you. So could you back off on the opposition? God, I'm, I'm walking with you. Why is life throwing me one thing after the other? And if we're not careful, we, we can succumb to this idea that because we are Christians that our life is supposed to be blessed and that God wants to bless us. And, and, and theologically, that, that is biblically accurate. That God does want to bless our lives. But I think we need to get a better understanding of that word and the definition of blessing because blessing doesn't mean that we're going to go through life without opposition and pain. And just like in the book of Acts, every major Christian movement is met with resistance and opposition 
And like 1 Peter says, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. My mind went back, uh, man, it's probably been 20 years from now. We had a, at Birchwood, when I was on staff there, there was a guy, a missionary from Turkey. His name was Kaya Essen, who came and he spoke at our church. And, and, and he was a good friend of uh, one of my mentors. And, and, and remember, we were down at Houston's on the plaza after the meeting and, and we just talked with him and, 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 and just said, I, I'll never forget just the passion of this man because at that time, and I assume you know, proclaiming Jesus could, I mean, he was like a modern day Paul. I mean, he, he, was, he was drug out to the dump many times thinking he was dead after being beaten and everything because of his faith and just, just tortured in so many ways. And, 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 and I, I remember you know, him saying when he was speaking, he says, he says Ukiah, why would you do such a thing? Why, why, would you, why would you continue to follow a God like that? And, and he says this in his Turkish, he says, because I love him. I love him. I remember in, when I was a teenager, there'd be sometimes in youth group or something like that where we'd play these games where, where we would pretend like the Russians were coming and, 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 and we were as Christians and they would come and, and, and if they found us, that they would put us to death and we'd hide people all throughout the church and stuff like that. And, 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 and so you had to be armed with scriptures or whatever to stand on if, if they found you. And so it kind of put in my mind, what would happen? What, what would it happen if it ever came to that day where somebody came and, and, and were, were, who knows, Russians or anybody could come and show up and say, if you don't profess the name of Jesus, you're going to be put to death. How would I respond to that? How would you respond to that? That... That that can cause fear, especially for children, uh, to consider that. And but we all face opposition. The, the way the world's heading right now, there's a very real chance that we one day could face persecution. We talked about it before. You know, there's all kinds of theories of when Jesus is going to come back and man you, you're really smart people much smarter than me can argue every point of that but at the end of the day it comes down to this is if Jesus comes before the rapture after the rapture whenever no matter when Jesus comes are you ready somebody's going to be wrong by the way but you better not be wrong if you're not ready Your heads. I don't, I don't say that to scare you, but just kind of put things in reality because we tend to go through life not thinking about the most important things. We, we tend to get caught up in living for what this world offers and being focused. And man, sometimes just life gets that way because it just it gets so hectic at times to where we we don't think about the seriousness of things. So, so as a Christian, are you ready to stand? When, when opposition comes, which we all deal with, I mean, all of us could, if 
I gave you the opportunity, we could all talk about just the opposition we faced in this last week of, of relationship struggles and financial pain and, and being stabbed in the back and things like that. We could all talk about that. And I know that there's times in my life when I walk through some of that and, and you just kind of want to say, what's the use? Until I remember that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And he challenges us just to press on in the middle of that. He wants to build, build a steadfast spirit in us so that when trouble comes, when trials come, when people come against us, that, that, that we see it for what it really is. I mean, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We, we, we're wrestling against a very real enemy. We're to stand on the truth of God's word. You may be here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your Savior. You've never given control over to him. And, and, and if that's you, I just want to I want to invite you, just let you know that his invitation to you this morning is to know him, to, to have a personal relationship with him. And just, you know, just in the simplicity of this moment, right, just say, God, would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? God, I give my life to you. We were talking about it all the time. It's not, we're not saved because we said a prayer. That's not. That's not what I said. That's just. Yeah, I mean, you, the words of that prayer don't save you. It's it's the condition of your heart. It's the your will being submitted to God. God, would you come, forgive me of my sin? God, come take control of my life. I want to follow you. I want to be ready to stand while I'm here on earth and ready to leave with you when you come back. Let's spend eternity with you. If you're here this morning or you're watching online this morning, you, you desire to do that, we'd love to hear from you just so we can pray with you and encourage you. So we just ask that you just reach out to us. Come up to me afterwards or send us an email or a text to the church office. We stand to your feet. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, we, we say thank you for just the faith of the early church. God, they, 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 there's so much to learn from them. We, we think that we're different, but in many ways, God, we're just like them, and uh, the situations may be a little bit different, for the, but, but God, it comes down to our love for you and our desire to please you and our desire to be yield to you and to walk in your power and not ours. So God, would you help us to understand that when opposition comes, <clears throat> that, that you're, you don't waste that. You use that as a way to strengthen us and as a way to bring glory to your son Jesus. God, help us to stand firm. Help us to love people the way you love. And God, I, I'll just flat out tell you, I, I don't have the power to do that on my own. There's too much of Dan that's still alive that 
that wants to react. But I, I pray, God, that you would help me to submit to you and surrender to your spirit where you could operate and move through me. God, I pray that for my friends here this morning. God, would you just be very real in their lives this week. God, as we walk through the challenges of this week, God, that we, we won't give up, that we keep pressing on. And when you put somebody on our heart to encourage God that we do that, we would encourage them and <clears throat> let them know that we're, they're not alone. We love you, Father. Continue to pray for those in our body that, that, that this need uh, touch from you, God. We lift up need to you this morning as she goes to the doctor tomorrow. God, we just pray, Father, for, uh, for there just to be clarity and what the issues with her arm. And God, we even speak healing in the name of Jesus over her. God, whatever means you want to do that, God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus, God. For those that are sick this morning in our body, for those that are that, that are walking through financial need, looking for a new job, God, I just pray, God, that they uh, would wait on you. And God, you would open up the door. God, would you do it in such a way that it would just be so clear that you did it so that we can give you the glory. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name. God bless you. We'll see you next week.